My name is Nancy. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, I've been having such a good time, and so much has been happening. Uh, I heard this lady speak um, in the spring, and uh, for me, I wanted to hear more from her, and I think you all will, too. That'll give you Harriet from Coral Gables, Florida. Good evening, everybody. Happy Halloween. Boo. <laughs> First time I've been booed before I said anything. <laughs> My name is Harriet. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of the Carl Gables Group, and I live in Miami, Florida. And I'm very grateful to this committee for having invited me here to your Halloween party. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever been more uh, royally received. I was met at the uh, airport, and uh, Nancy has been in touch with me, Nelene, and a lot of you came down to Palm Beach, Florida this year to our convention, and I've gotten to know a few of you, and I really feel very comfortable, and I want to thank everyone on the committee, and particularly my hostess, Nancy, uh, for such a lovely, lovely reception and uh, taking good care of me. I'm here to tell you something about myself. I'm delighted to see so many new people here tonight in their uh, first few weeks and uh, first few months of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, learning how to stay sober, learning about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and finding out that you can have fun and not drink, that you can live and be comfortable without drinking. My sobriety date is January 14th, 1956. I know some of you weren't even born yet. I took my last drink the day I arrived in Miami, Florida, and I have lived in Miami ever since. Some people have asked me if I've lived in Florida all my life, and the answer is yes, all my sober life, because when I, I began to live, the day I took my last drink. I didn't know that you uh, were allowed to go out and drink again. I'm one of these people who never had a slip. And if you're fairly new here in the program, or even if you've been around for a while, you don't ever have to drink again. Once in a while, I hear someone come out of a treatment center, and they'll stay sober for a few weeks, and they say, oh, I guess maybe I'm not feeling too good. Maybe I'll have a slip. Everybody has to have a slip. Well, that's a lie. You do not have to slip. You do not have to ever drink again. Once you have committed yourself and accepted the fact that you're powerless over alcohol, you have a program that will help you to stay sober in any, under any circumstances, under any living circumstances. I didn't know that many years ago. I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. I'm an only child. A lot of us are. I don't think any of the surveys that AA has ever done have taken a survey on how many of us are only children. But I've listened to a lot of speakers in my 36 years of sobriety, and many of us are only children. If we're not only children, we were the um, maybe a favored child. Maybe the oldest, maybe the youngest, maybe the prettiest, you know, maybe the smartest. 
but uh, usually we're already the only child. And I, I come from a nice family. There was no dysfunction. Um, my parents loved me. I loved them. We were a happy family. Uh, my father was a self-made man. He had very little education. My mother had gone to college back in the days when not all women were able to go away to college. And because of their education or the lack of, they both wanted me to have a good education. And they started sending me to good schools immediately. I was taught at home. I, I knew my numbers and my alphabet and my letters uh, before I went to school. As a consequence, when I got to school, I was a little bit too smart for the first grade and not quite smart enough for the second grade. And as a consequence, I never felt comfortable in either one. And that was sort of the story of my life. I was never quite comfortable with this group and never quite comfortable with that group. I always either felt superior to one or inferior to the other. I never quite fit in with the class or the group that I was with. I was pretty good in sports. I wasn't always chosen first, but I never was last. And sometimes I even got to be the leader of the team. And uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the attention. Uh, we lived out in what was then the country. And um, as a consequence, when we had company over the weekend, my folks had a lot of friends that came and played cards and they had parties. And as a consequence, they would uh, often stay for the weekend. And uh, when they would get tired of playing cards or whatever they were doing, they'd say about midnight, let's go down to Ray Hoddles and have some steamed clams and some lobster. And I was about nine or ten years old, and being an only child, they couldn't leave me out in the country, so of course they always took me with them. And uh, I can remember sitting at that big table, eating steamed clams and lobster, and someone handing me a little glass of brown stuff, and they said, drink it, well, it will help your indigestion. I was nine years old, I didn't know I had indigestion. <laughs> but being an obedient child, I drank this bitter stuff that tasted funny, and it had, it left a little white mustache on my upper lip, and I licked my lip, and it was bitter, and I made a face, and then I said, oh, isn't that good? I felt grown up. I felt part of the, of the adult crowd. And I tackled my lobster with much more gusto. And I've never forgotten that feeling of feeling bigger than life. I was no longer a little girl. I was a big girl, and I was eaten with the grown-ups. And as someone reminded me tonight, you know, I'm still available for Midnight's Lobster, if any of you are. <laughs> and the steam clams, too. Immediately in my life, there became a feeling of this mental compulsion. I began to have the obsession. From then on, I thought about alcohol. Now, a nine to ten-year-old little girl doesn't continuously think about alcohol. But what I remember is that every time alcohol was mentioned, my ears perked up. When my daddy was late getting home from the country club and they said, oh, he got stuck on the 19th hole. I never had to ask what that meant. I knew that daddy had stopped off in the bar to have a few drinks with the fellows. I just understood that. And if there was going to be a party and they were getting ready to serve a little liquor and not much was served in our home, it was still prohibition time. And uh, some of you young people don't know what that was, but it was the law of the land. You could not buy alcohol legally. And the bootlegger came to our house. And he would come. We had a very large house out in the country. It was an old farmhouse remodeled. And there were many, many doors. 
Uh, one door was for the uh, paper, one door where the milkman left the milk, another door that was called the preacher's door. Nobody ever came to that door except the preacher. And then there was the back door way up in, by the uh, second floor where the garage was, and that was the bootleg gro- uh, door. And when that doorbell rang, you knew that when you went up there, you would find a brown paper bag. And in the brown paper bag would be a bottle or two of uh, whiskey. And I remember very strange things. And what I remember is that his name was Andy Bittenbender. (laughs) And the bottle was called um, Rittenhouse. And it smelled like perfume. And when I think about that first drink back there at Ray Honnold's, I think about what I've read and heard about alcoholism today. And I say, if you remember your first drink, you're probably alcoholic because it was important. And I remember that first drink because it was important. It made me feel good. It made me feel big. It made me feel different than what I was. And I remember the bootlegger bringing that whiskey, and they would keep it in the bathroom until there was a party because it was medicine. And it was in the bathroom for toothaches or to uh, uh, to warm it up and put a little milk in it. And, and it was a good place for it in the bathroom. But when the company came and anybody wanted to have a drink, somebody would go up to the bathroom and bring it downstairs, and it would become a social affair. Same bottle. And um, I was the one that might have a little sip out of uh, somebody's glass, and I would know instinctively how to act. I would giggle and prance around and pretend that I was drunk. I knew. I had that mental obsession about alcohol. I knew there was something there, and it never left my mind whenever it was uh, anywhere in the vicinity. My ears just kind of went out like Dr. Spock's, you know. (laughs) My next really drink that I remember was when I was 15. And um, having done all this extra work at home and going to school and being upgraded, I was going off to college in that fall. I was 15 years old. I know now that I was not prepared to go to college. I I was smart enough. My grades were good enough, but I was so immature. I I shouldn't have even been out of high school, but I was. And I was going off to college, and I got the measles. And the doctor prescribed a little port wine. He said it will help her get her strength back. And you know it did. My daddy didn't know what a little port wine was. He bought a big bottle, and he left it right by the bed so I could get a little port wine. And when they came back a little time later, I had drunk most of it. I had vomited. I had passed out, and I lay there. And when I came to, I said, oh, wasn't that good? I always drank for the effect. It was what it made me feel. It wasn't. didn't matter what it tasted like. I did learn to like it. But mostly I drank because I liked the effect. It made me feel different from what I was. Went off to college. It was a uh, Methodist school in those days. And, uh, of course, there wasn't much drinking. It was depression time. Nobody had any money to speak of. And um, I was studying to be a school teacher. My, uh, that's what ladies did back then in that time. Um, I'm trying to think what time it was. 1932, the Big Depression, the one of all, the biggie of all times. And my father was sending me a little extra money from time to time, and my mother would send me pretty dresses and say, wear this for the junior prom. And uh, then I'd bring a fellow home for Christmas, and they'd say, oh, he's a nice fellow. Uh, 
we like him. And then I might bring somebody else home and they'd say, oh, never mind him. We don't want to ever see him again. And, of course, if there was any drinking being done, if any of the fellows found a few bucks to find the, some bootleg booze, I was right there with them. And it wasn't until I came into AA that I knew what happened a couple of times at junior, senior dances. We'd go out at intermission time, and we'd have this bottle, and it couldn't, uh, couldn't possibly have been more than a pint, maybe over, even a half pint. And we would split it two ways, four ways, and you know how far a pint goes with uh, alcoholics. And it, but I got giggly and silly even before the top came off of the bottle. It was, it was mental with me from the very beginning. And this is what is so hard for the newcomer to understand, that it isn't uh, a habit, it isn't, uh, uh, and, and the non-alcoholic will never understand this completely. Uh, the non-alcoholic doesn't understand that it's a mental, physical, and spiritual illness, and that when we start to get well, we have to get well in all three areas. And mine was mental from the very beginning. Yes, I had the allergy to alcohol, but that mental compulsion is what I realized from the very first, that I, I was always on my mind. And so when we had this a uh, couple of drinks, I can remember going back to the dance after the intermission, and I might be dancing with, with Jim. And all of a sudden, uh, I, I'd turn around and, and, and I'd be, be dancing with Keith. And I didn't know what was happening until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was having little blackouts when I was 18 years old. Now, you don't have to have blackouts, be they two or three minutes or long, to be an alcoholic. A blackout is when you keep on doing what looks normal to other people, and yet you're completely blacked out. You don't know what's happened. As opposed to passing out when you just go to sleep and, and uh, you're not in a real sleep, your, your brain has been deadened by alcohol. And that's passing out. But a blackout is continuing to function, and sometimes continuing to function in, for long periods of time, not only a few moments, but sometimes a few days, a few weeks. And sometimes, if you're lucky, you'll wake up in some other country, in some other city, with some other guy. Hopefully with money. And then you say, how did I get here, and who are you? Alcoholism, peculiar illness, the mental compulsion, the physical allergy that drives us to condemns us to die or to go mad, go mad. And many of us end up in mental wards. I did. I wasn't completely mad in the uh, legal sense of the word, but I was mad because I could not live in society without drinking. And to drink for me meant to be drunk. And the society that I chose to live in would not tolerate me drunk. So I had to sink to the lower depths of lower companions, as the book calls them. And I went so far down that I couldn't find any companions lower than me. You know, and, and they began to get, they didn't want me around. And that's pretty low. Um, I did graduate from college. I got a Bachelor of Arts degree. And my father told me that the depression had him licked and he was broke and that I'd better get a real job because school teaching didn't pay in those days. And so I, the, the last words that my parents gave to me as uh, they ran my life for me was take a secretarial course. And I did that. And when I took the secretarial course, I then began to get a, a, a federal job with the federal government. And they sent me to Philadelphia. And I got a new management. My parents, my educators had all managed my life for me. And now I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 
with new manager who told me exactly the same things that my parents had. He told me who to go out with more than once. If you drank the way I drank, we went out together. We had a lot of fun. If you didn't drink the way I drank, forget it. But I did find out that we were going over to Camden, New Jersey, too, very often on Saturdays and Sundays because the blue laws in Pennsylvania prohibited the kind of drinking that I like to do. I was 20 years old. I was thin. I was young. I was pretty, and I was popular, and I was having a good time, but I knew there was something wrong going over to New Jersey to, to, to drink. Uh, it, it, um, my new manager was alcohol. Alcohol started to manage my life when uh, I went to Philadelphia. And it managed my life right up to the day that I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1956. But at that time, I began to think there was a little problem with my drinking, and I began to change my drinking habits. I began to change the way I dressed. If, you, if I didn't get drunk while I was wearing this particular dress, I would wear it again. <laughs> and if, if I had eaten mashed potatoes and I did not get drunk, I would eat mashed potatoes. My thinking was absolutely crazy. And it uh, didn't make any sense at all to anybody except me. And then I would go on the wagon, and I would say, my date would say, don't drink. He says, you're such a nice girl. Why do you drink so much? Don't drink tonight. And I'd say, okay. And so I wouldn't drink, and everybody else would be drinking, and I'd sit there with a long face and be the martyr, and finally my date would say, oh, for God's sakes, take a drink. And boy, well, that was all I needed to get going. <laughs> I couldn't imagine life without alcohol. Along the way somewhere, I, I tried some uh, uh, marijuana. I tried smoking cigarettes. I tried some pills. I tried some other things that were going at the time. But they never did anything for me. They didn't, uh, it didn't do for me what alcohol did. Nothing that I ever tried did anything like alcohol did. I'm, I'm what they call a pure alcoholic. <laughs> oh, that's all I wanted. I love my grog. And so... Um, World War II came along, and um, <laughs> the, um, I was working for the Army by this time. We'd moved to Camp Lee in Petersburg, Virginia, from, from Philadelphia, and I was already being threatened with being demoted because of my bad habits. I uh, was late for work. I missed work. I had no excuse. Everybody knew that I was drinking too much. It was common knowledge. I didn't even bother to call in when I didn't go. And uh, the women were starting to join up the various services. First they had the WAX, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. That didn't appeal to me. I just, first of all, I didn't care for the uniform. <laughs> and uh, in my extreme peculiar ego that we alcoholics have that covers up that inferiority complex, you know, we, we, we grow into egomaniacs. And yet we know that we're inferior to everybody. And uh, I figured that if I did join the Women's Army Corps, the uh, Camp Lee executives would want me right back there at Camp Lee uh, to run the camp. And um, I, I just knew that they were causing my drinking. And so I looked over the other uniforms very carefully. I wanted to look good. I'm so patriotic. And... Um, I decided that I really liked the Marine Corps uniform. In World War II, the, the Lady Marines wore an olive drab uniform with a red ascot tie. And, I, I, you know, for years I've said, and it's true, I could have gone to the dime store and bought a red ascot tie, but that's what I wanted. And the red silk cord around the cap. And um, so I decided that was the uniform for me. 
And when the time came that I just could not make it to work that day, and it was, uh, uh, I was so sick, and I, I had to go to Richmond, Virginia, to enlist. And uh, by the time I got to Richmond, I was shaking, so outwardly I was still in my early 20s, and I looked good still, and um, put on the act. You know the act where we smile and say everything is fine, and inside we're dying, and the heart is beating rapidly, and the hands are trembling, and you're hiding them and trying to sit on them so nobody sees it, and you go to sign a check, and the pen goes shooting off in the air, and particularly if you're writing a bad check, you know. And I was trying to control all this and smile and look good and be macho for the Marine. And all of a sudden, I, I, um, I'm signing papers, and he said, we're going to send you to officer's training school. And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to be an officer. And he said, oh, yes, look at this wonderful education. You will make us a fine leader. <laughs> you, should, you should have known what he was getting in the way of a leader. And so I finally signed all these papers, and he swore me in, and then he shook my hand, and he said to me, Welcome to the United States Navy. <laughs> and I said, Sir, I came here to join the Marine Corps. And he said, Honey, you got off the elevator on the wrong floor, and you are in the Navy now. <laughs> Well, a wonderful thing happened. They um, did send me to officer training school. I became uh, an ensign and later lieutenant junior grade, and I was assigned to the supply corps. And they sent me to Hingham, Massachusetts, where they put me in charge of some warehouses full of ammunition. <laughs> but you want to be very glad that there was nothing, it was not live stuff. It seems that the ordnance department had used it all up. And we were supposed to take care of it after it had been shot off or whatever they did with it. I didn't even know what we were doing. <laughs> but they assigned to me a, a jeep and a, a pickup truck and eight seamen to do the actual labor. And a wonderful opportunity for me, they gave us a forklift truck. Now, the seamen, of course, were supposed to operate this forklift truck. But on my martini lunch days, you know who ran the forklift truck. And I didn't like going slow. I liked to go fast. And I would tootle down and around on two wheels, and the forks would go up and down, and my seamen would lay on the floor and laugh and think this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. They just were having a wonderful time. But they are not long, the days of wine and roses. One day I heard one of my seamen talking under his breath, and he was talking loud enough so I could hear him. We don't like you anymore. Where'd you learn that kind of language? You talk like us. Where'd you learn that street talk? We don't like you. And I pretended, as I was to pretend for many years to come, that I did not hear him. But what I heard was this. I heard that whatever was going on inside of me, that I hated. I knew that I was turning from a little lady into a tramp, a drunk, and I knew it was showing on the outside. I thought I'd been covering it up. See, my mother and my father had not only sent me to school, but they had sent me to elocution lessons to learn how to speak properly, and they sent me to dancing classes to learn not only to dance, but to learn my manners, to wear the white gloves and the little patent leather shoes, and to put a little perfume behind my ears, and to be a little lady. 
And here I am, a drunken tramp, running around and swearing and cursing and using the kind of language that, from the streets. And I was being picked up by the shore patrol from Boston into Hingham, and only because I was an officer and a, supposedly a lady, they saw me home instead of throwing me into the brig. And it was rapidly deteriorating. I was about 24, 25 years old, and I had 10 more years of drinking to go. I was a little envious of these people who had gone off to overseas, and uh, because we waves didn't go overseas in those days. And I got out of the Navy and um, went down to the Pentagon building one day, and I saw a recruiting sign. And the next thing I knew, I was in North Africa. Now, North Africa in 1946 was not exactly a social mecca. They were still cleaning up after World War II. The um, troops they were just moving out. And our job was to come in and do some of the cleanup work. And some of the men were on duty going out in jeeps and planes, picking out the bodies out of the Sahara Desert and out of the Atlas Mountains, bringing the bodies back in for proper burial and to be sent to various cemeteries, veteran cemeteries. And there were a lot of us that were drunks. But it was there that I met my Arab. <laughs> now, my Arab was not just any ordinary fellow. He was a Kaid. Now, a Kaid is like the mayor of maybe of Cincinnati. <laughs> and my Kaid was the mayor of the Kaid of an oasis called Busada. And so I went to Busada and we rode our camels into the sunset. <laughs> and I really thought that we were going to dwell forever in a tent with oriental rugs on the floor. And a little boy to fan me and somebody feeding me grapes. And I'm sure that some of this came from the early movies. I was an only child living in the country. I saw a lot of movies. I read a lot of books. But some of it, it was real, and I've, it's just as real as day to me now. But the State Department frowned on this. <laughs> and they sent for me. And we started back into Busada riding these camels. And my and I wish I could remember his name. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is so clear except his name. <laughs> and he was wearing a garment called a burnoose. Now I have oftentimes described this burnoose to you all. But tonight, I don't have to describe it. Nancy has made me a replica of the famous Bernouche. And we have it right here. Here we go. This is a Bernouche.
the hood, the hood can be worn as a protection against the cold, against bugs, against scorpions. It can be used to uh, hold a bottle of booze. It can also be used if you want to be mysterious. And I wanted to be mysterious, but mostly I was weird. <laughs> See, I, I wanted that Renus, and he liked my navy raincoat, so we traded. <laughs> and when the State Department sent me home, I used this Renus as an evening wrap. And, and I would swish around in it, you know, and I would lurk in corners and hide, and I'd flirt. And I was, uh, I thought I was a spy. <laughs> By this time, my imagination had completely run amok. I was the Mata Hari of World War II, and nobody knew it except me. <laughs> but in a moment of truth, I looked at this wonderful Bernus that meant so much to me at that moment. And I have to tell you, that it was not the gorgeous thing that this is. It wasn't clean and white and pretty and graceful. It was made of brown wool, and it was full of moth holes, and it was gritty with sand from the Sahara, and it had been wrapped around too many goats and camels and sheep, and it stunk. It really did. Now, I've never been in jail. I've never been, uh, I, I was taken to jail one time in a paddy wagon. I made a lot of hospitals. The first time I was hospitalized, it was during my World War II days, and they put me in sick bay because they didn't know what was wrong with me. But in three days, I was well. And now today, of course, I know that I just dried out in three days. But my illness progressed just as ours, yours is, and mine is right now. Alcoholism progresses even as we stay sober. And the three-day dry-out period was fine in my early days, but the next time it was maybe four or five days. And later it was five and six and seven days. And my last hospitalization was in 1955. And it started about this time of the year. And I was to stay there until January of 1956, just prior to my coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. The one time I was taken to jail in a complete blackout, I called a, uh, a, a, a city manager to come and get me. I do not remember making the phone call. But he came for me, and he took me home, and he put his arms around me, and he said, Harriet, promise me you'll never drink like that again. And I promised him, and I promised so many people that I wouldn't drink like that, and I didn't know what I was saying because I didn't know any other way to drink. You see, I don't believe that I ever drank too much too often and too long and crossed over an invisible line and became an alcoholic. I know some of you think you did, and I'm sure you're right for you. But for me, it was different. I had to drink the way I drank because I knew no other way to drink. I was alcoholic from that first little glass of beer at Ray Hoddle's with the lobster. And from then on, I had to drink the way I drank, too much, too often, and too long. I never had a choice. I was always alcoholic. And so here I was, being taken out of jail by my friend, and said, promise me you'll never drink like that again. Another time I was asked to leave a hotel in Washington, D.C. because of my drunkenness. 
the Mayfire Hotel in Washington, D.C., and they took me out the side door. And as they did, a policeman came along, and he says, come on, I'll walk you home. And I put my shoulders back and my head up, and I said, you know, the policeman is taking me home. Aren't I something? I thought it was an honor, drunk, being put out of the hotel, and the policeman is taking me home. And I got to our house. My parents lived nearby, and he rang the doorbell, and they came to the door. I think the hotel had called ahead. And I can remember one of them saying, why do you drink like that? And I lashed out at them, tried to hurt them physically. I tried to remember trying to kick someone. And I was always a a wet noodle drunk. I I had no strength. But I cried out at them and I said, what the hell? And I used all those words that I used to use. And please, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to use that kind of language anymore. But I cursed my parents. And I told them what I thought of them. I said, I'm not hurting you. These wonderful parents who had sent me to school and sent me money for pretty dresses and sent me little sticks of chewing gum when I was in boarding school and chewing gum was forbidden. And um, um, this, they sent me to dancing school to learn manners and to wear white gloves and be a lady and to put earrings on. And here's this drunken tramp saying, what do you care? You're not hurting. I'm not hurting you. What did I do to hurt you? And inside, I'm crying out, please, God, I don't know why I'm like this. I don't want to be like this. I hate it. I'm sick, and I don't know how to express myself. And I knew that it was terrible, and I knew I was dying, and I knew I was killing them. And the best thing they ever did for me, the best thing they ever did for me in 1955 was said, no more. We can't help you anymore. And they would never send me another penny, and they never spoke to me until I sobered up and came to Alcoholics Anonymous. The best thing they did for me was nothing. They stopped enabling me. And my friends stopped letting me come to their homes and mooch their liquor and mooch their money. They said, no, no more. We're going to stop helping you. Best thing that they can do for us is nothing. We have to stop on our own. We have to accept the complete defeat. And out of that complete defeat comes the surrender. And we win. And we begin to stay sober. And so, anyway... The state, de- I came home, the State Department sent me home, and um, I made my way to um, Miami, Florida. I was looking for a new way to live, and I got drunk, you know, and um, I landed up at the San Marco Clubhouse, the AA Club in Jacksonville, Florida, and two wonderful ladies told me that they were alcoholic. And I looked at those two ladies with their pretty clean dresses and their fresh hairdos and their manicures and stockings with no runs in them. And they, I said, you're alcoholics? And I said, we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began to want what they had to offer me. And they saw how sick I was, and they got me into hospitals, and they got me into finally the mental ward of the Veterans Hospital in Salisbury, North Carolina. Now, the first week I was there, I was in the worst ward, Ward D., they said that it was on record that I was suicidal. And um, I said, I didn't mean it. No, I didn't mean it. You know. <laughs> God, you can hurt yourself. You know, you know. All I ever wanted out of those suicide attempts was someone to say they loved me. That's all I wanted. And, and um, then I said, I'm very grateful for that week. Uh, the ladies in my ward were, were violent. And I saw what happens to them. 
I would be talking to one one minute, and uh, the next minute she'd be crazy and go off on a tangent, and they'd have to put her in a straitjacket or put her in the rubber room. I never found out what was went on in the rubber room, but when they came out, they were walking zombies. And I saw them go in for electric shock and come out like walking zombies. And then we'd sit down to play bridge, and if you've never played bridge with three zombies, you ain't lived. <laughs> And then I moved to, they moved me up to the good ward, and um, I, I excelled in all my duties. Um, I, I was very good at OT, I, I, occupational therapy. I made my ashtrays real good. Um, we never had a contest, but I would have won. <laughs> I made a leather belt and it was gorgeous. I gave it to my doctor because I'd fallen in love with him. <laughs> I loved the HT. HT is hydrotherapy. That's laying in a tub of water with a tarp over you and you just lay there and dream and all that. There have been times in my 36 years of sobriety that I would love to go back to that hydrotherapy. <laughs> Under supervision, of course. <laughs> oh, I love that. And then I was there for the Christmas play. Again, if you're ever in a mental institution, be sure to go at Christmas time. <laughs> we do the Christmas pageant, and uh, I was King Herod. <laughs> now, my, my King Herod robe was much like this, except it was red. I think it was velvet or something. It was gorgeous. And um, <laughs> we had all the proper people, and... Um, well, the big thing about the Christmas play is when two of our shepherds escaped on Christmas night. <laughs> and right after Christmas, they told me... Another thing that happened that Christmas that was important to me, they took us out for a ride so we could see the Christmas lights. And it was in a bus, like a school bus. And I had my nose pressed up against the glass, and I was admiring all the lights on the pretty homes, and there was a lot of water and the reflection of the lights. It was beautiful. And the thought went through my head that my life was over. I was going to be 39 years old in just a few weeks, and my life was over. I knew that. I would never again be on the free world, and I would go through the rest of my life admiring other people's happiness, Christmases, and other holidays vicariously by riding around in a bus and looking in from the outside. I knew that, and I was resigned to it. And yet in January, they told me they were going to let me go and not to drink like that anymore. And I still didn't know what that meant. And I was just as alcoholic in January as I had been when I went in there in September. I had heard a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous and I knew I was going to go to AA when I got out of there because those people didn't drink and I didn't want to drink. But no one had told me yet how. No one had told me it was one day at a time that if I didn't take one drink, I would never have to get drunk. And so the day I left there, I was petrified. And if any of you here tonight are working with institutions, with the jails, with the prisons, with hospitals, be there when your friend is getting out. Be there the moment he, they look, let that door open. It's scary, because the world does not change. You and I have to change. We cannot change the world. We cannot change each other. But if you're working with a patient or a client or a prisoner, please be there to take him to an AA room, to an AA cup of coffee, to an AA house, to an AA meeting. That very day, get him there 
and tell him that he never has to go back to any one of those places again. Once you come to Alcoholics Anonymous and see this program and see how it works, it's yours if you want it. And all you have to do is to surrender. Surrender to win. And so I got drunk, naturally. And it was the worst drunk of my life. And it was the last. I took my last, my first drink when I left there on January the 9th. It was a Monday. And I knew that the following Saturday I would be 39 years old. It was my natal birthday coming up. And when I took that drink, something happened. I was standing in front of a mirror in the ladies' room. Along the way somewhere between Salisbury and, um, and uh, my Florida. And I was on my way to Florida to make a new life. And I took this drink while standing in front of the mirror and I saw some things happen physically and emotionally. I lifted the bottle to my lip. And as I took the drink and it went down, I saw in my mind's eye in that mirror, the bottle got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I got smaller and smaller and smaller, just like Alice in Wonderland. And I knew that alcohol was bigger than I was and I could no longer fight it. There's a new pamphlet out, it came out about a year ago, The Twelve Steps Illustrated. And the very first picture in the book, the illustration, is a great big, big bottle and a little tiny person down here at the bottom. And the caption is exactly what I said that day, January the 9th, 1956. The bottle has me down, my life is a mess. That's acceptance. The bottle has me down, my life is a mess. I'm going to be 39 years old in a few days and my life is over. And I made a decision right then and there that I was going to turn my life and my will over to the care of those people from Alcoholics Anonymous because they said they didn't have to drink anymore. And I said, I must be crazy. I'm right out of a mental institution and I'm drinking this alcohol. I need to be restored to normalcy, to good, clear thinking to common sense thinking, to restore to sanity. And I submit to you that I took those first three steps right there on Monday, January the 9th. But what I did not do was to implement it by starting that inventory and talking to people and going through with what I know now are 12 steps. I didn't know anything about steps. All I knew was that I had surrendered, I'd given up. But I had taken a drink of alcohol, I'd set up that terrible compulsion again, and that phenomenon of craving that Dr. Silkworth talks about in the doctor's opinion had set in. The phenomenon of craving that only an alcoholic can understand. The phenomenon of craving. You have to have it. It's not a desire. It's not a wish. It's not a thought. It's just you crave it and you have to have it or you'll die. You know it. And that's what happened on that Monday and it went from Friday till Friday night, January the 13th and I was crying and didn't want to drink and trying not to and praying to the best of my ability. And Friday night on that train, I was going down to the end of the sleeping car where they had that terrible warm water and a tank of chlorinated things and flat cups that you had to open up like this and you had to open a bottle and you couldn't do it with two hands. You had to have six hands and your teeth and everything. And, and, and that's the way it was Saturday morning, January the 14th. And I was 39 years old that day. And I was to look up in my birth certificate later on. And I was born at 6 o'clock in the morning on January the 14th in 1900. No. 
And I said, please, God, no more. And I put the drink down, and I've never had another drink. One second before I had to have it, that craving was insatiable. It would have, I would have died if I didn't get it. And because of what I call now a spiritual experience, I put the drink down and never to pick it up again. One of the definitions of the many definitions of a spiritual experience is that we are now able to do with God's help what we could not do by ourselves. And look at all of us in this room tonight who have had a spiritual experience that we do not have to drink because of God's help when without it we had to have that drink. That phenomenon of craving was taken away by a power greater than ourselves. Spiritual experiences, they're all through this room. And so I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I met the fellow of my dreams. I said, I have to get a job. And they said, no, not yet. I said, I have to find a place to live. I was staying with my cousin. And they said, no, not yet. And I said, look at that cute fellow over there. And they said, no, not yet. But I didn't listen. I had been married before. I married a sea captain. And it was a terrible drunken mistake. It was just awful. And so by the time this fellow and I got decided we'd be married after a long courtship of three weeks. <laughs> we were married by a minister in a church, and it was all done properly. And I listened to those words, you know, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse. And I took them to heart because I wanted this to be a good marriage. And I began to stay sober and to be a married lady. And uh, one day my group gave me an envelope and said, here, you're the new treasurer. And it was $4.98, and you could have given me 4000 because you trusted me with the money of the group. I hadn't been trusted in so long. And then you gave me a list of 16 names and phone numbers and said, you're the new program chairman. And I said, what is that? They said, well, you call up these people, and you arrange for meetings to swap back and forth. And I got to know everybody in Miami area in those days. We had 16 groups, and we all knew each other. And it was a great job. I loved it. And then, uh, in the meantime, my husband has got a job, and we love each other, and I want to be a good housewife, and I want to be a good uh, lover. I want to be a, a good, I just want to be good at everything I'm trying to do, and I thought life was going to be happy ever after. I really thought that now that I was sober and I wasn't drinking, that everything was just going to be hunky-dory. And then I found out that I had married a slipper. My husband had told me he'd been around the program for 16 years. And I was too smart, he asked, to ask what that meant, you know. I found out that he'd been around and around and around. And he was a sweetheart. He knew the book. He knew this book so well. And he could give an AA talk that, you, oh, you'd go out of here just walking on air. And he'd be drunk the next day. He was one of those that could uh, talk the talk. But he couldn't walk the walk. But through his sickness... And I, tr I thought of it as such, and I said, I must help this man. And I, I, tried, I tried to fix him. <laughs> I really thought, you know, that I was sober now. And, and knowing the little bit I knew about alcoholism, I thought surely that uh, I could pass it on to him. But he died of alcoholism. He died. I had to divorce him. Too many things happened, the law, the insurance, and all these things. And I had to divorce him. And I thought my life was over. 
I had gotten a job with a public relations firm, and it was such a wonderful job, and after, I, I, I thought I could never work again. And yet, I answered a job for temporary office work. Uh, the paper actually said, temporary job, one day at a time. And, and they said I could take that job. And one day at a time, I stayed there 14 years. And about the same time, my husband was getting into deeper and deeper trouble. And I found out that he was not, not only a uh, very heavy alcoholic, but he was um, had grave emotional problems. And the book says that we can recover even from grave emotional problems if we have the capacity to be honest. And my husband had not the capacity to be honest. I can do, I, I, I analyze him now because I knew him very well. And I pass it on to you because if there's anyone here tonight who is gravely emotionally ill, we have many members who are staying sober because they are constitutionally honest with themselves. But if you're not constitutionally able to be honest with yourself and you have grave emotional problems, you need extra help. And the book says we can get extra help, perhaps the psychiatry or whatever we need, psychology. But try AA, give it a good whirl, because uh, that, that usually can help us. But in any event, I tried to kill my husband twice. <laughs> you, 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 think, you think sober means you're not crazy? You can be sober and absolutely you've driven up a wall. I actually had the weapon in my hand on two different occasions, and I stood over him and, uh, please God, don't let this happen, and both times I was spared. I, I thought, well, one time I didn't kill him because I figured out I'd be the one to go to jail and he'd be dead. And what was the point of that? Uh, when, I, when our little job closed up after 14 years and Bob was getting worse, and I, again, I thought my life was over. And uh, because of another AA member, I, I got in with a very fine firm from which I retired in 1968. 19, that's not right. 80. Oh, by the way, um, I got sober on my 39th birthday, and I'm sober 36 years if you've been trying to figure that out. So I'll give you time to count your toes and fingers on that. Um, I retired from that company in 19, um, well, seven years ago, whatever that was. And they gave me a party. Uh, I had tried to retire when I was 65. And they said, no, no, we, we need you. And uh, they kept saying that for three years. And finally, when I was 68 years old, they said, okay, well, things are changing now. And they gave me a party, a farewell party. And it was lovely. Everybody said nice things about me. And they gave me a gift, and I started to cry a little bit. But what they didn't know was that I was not crying for retiring purposes. I was crying because I remembered the gal who got off the train in January of 1956. Hopeless, helpless, alcoholic. Nothing to live for. Completely, life completely over. In January of 1956, I had no hope. Hopeless and helpless alcoholic. And yet I recovered and have led a useful, happy, contented life. I know the book says that we, God would like us all to be happy, joyous, and free. And a lot of the time I've been pretty happy and joyous and free, but I don't think life is all that. I think life is some hard knocks, and life is real, life is earnest, and it is not always fair. 
Now, maybe if you've been sober a short period of time, like I was, and things go well, you think it's going to be happy, joyous, and free forever. But I want to tell you, if you live in the real world, and you work in the real world, and you deal with real people, you're going to have some problems. And if you get this program under your belt, you don't ever have to worry about taking a drink. You face them head on. That's what this program is about, facing life, the way it's handed to us. Fix it if we can, courage to change the things if we can, but the serenity to accept the things that we cannot change. And, oh, God, please give us the wisdom to know the difference. And so I did retire remembering that I had come from nothing, and now I was retiring with a good reputation and knowing a lot of people and fairly comfortable. Um, my husband had remarried, and then he died. And we, we buried him together, you know. And, and so within two months, I, I found out that I was going to not like retirement. And so um, I was said that at a meeting one night, and one of the fellows that we call Actor Bob overheard me. He says, come on down to the theater. We need some extra help down there. And so I did. I went down to the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Miami, Florida, and they offered me a very good position. And I said, no, thank you. I don't want to work 9 to 5. I'll work 10, 10.30 to 4, 4.30. And I want Fridays off whenever I go to Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> and uh, they said, okay. And I was temporary part-time seven years ago. I'm still there. <laughs> so I love to say that now I'm in showbiz. <laughs> There's some promises in the big book that um, we all talk about. But, um, and they're all lumped together there after the ninth step. But if you're new, and there's some of you who have been around for a while, remember there's a, at least one promise on every page of the big book, and there's 164 pages. So if you think there are only 12 promises, you're mistaken. There are promises on 164 pages, and there's sometimes two or three in one page. And the ones I like are in the chapter 11. And it says you're going to meet lifelong friends here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, it, it will bring you happiness and joy, and life will mean something at last. I talked about this today at the 12 o'clock meeting, and life has come to mean something to me. There have been times during my sobriety that I, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to keep on going and living. Things got pretty bad with Bob, and, and uh, I thought, I, this isn't worth it. And actually, one time I was ready to kind of give up. I said, I just don't want to go on. I wasn't thinking suicide, really, but I just didn't want to, I, just, I didn't know, I just didn't want to be anymore. I wanted to get out. And the phone rang, and they said, come on, let's go to a general service quarterly meeting. I said, yeah, that's a good place to go. They, they, they have a lot of sobriety there, and I'll see some old friends. And I went to the quarterly meeting, and I came back, and I came to my group. I said, I want to be a GSR. And they said, well, you can't. I said, why not? And they said, because we already have one, you dummy. And, and, and so I be, when the rotation time came around, I got to be a general service representative. And I jumped into service and became a district committee member. And then I went on to be the delegate from South Florida and went to New York for two years for the assembly. And now my area has just uh, nominated me to go into contention for a trusteeship, uh, which I won't get, but they, they think enough of me to nominate me. And uh, so life means something to me. I have friends that uh, we don't ask anything of each other except to love one another. And those of you who are new tonight, 
uh, love one another, love each other. You know, we ha don't don't use the word hate. Don't hate anybody or hate anything. Maybe you don't really like them, but love them. It's important. Um, we live a positive life. I want to thank the committee again, and I want to friend my my friend Jeff. You know, he, he got the pattern for the Bernoos. He was down in Palm, in Palm Beach, and we kidded about this. And yet, out of the kidding came this fruition of my wonderful Bernoos. And I'm going to put my hood up and take my leave, and I wish you all happy holidays. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>